Hello and welcome to The Double Life. I'm John Boostar, and this week we head to Brooklyn, New York, and sit down with journalist and war correspondent Ben Anderson. Ben has covered everything from the war in Afghanistan to ISIS fighters, drug lords, and migrant camps around the world. We discuss many topics and get an inside look into a world that not many get to explore. Enjoy. I mean, it kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, my my family weren't in school. Um, you know, the, we weren't reading newspapers every day. The house wasn't full of books. Um, journalism wasn't something that was ever, you know, even thought of as an even vague possibility. And then when I was about 17 years old, I think, I started reading, you know, political stuff and mostly about foreign affairs. So I read about the Indonesian invasion of, of East Timor and British support for Indonesia. I read about Iraq, Afghanistan, Congo, Israel, Palestine. And and I just, you know, I was stunned that, that what I was reading just seemed so urgent and important to me and so shocking. I was amazed that it wasn't part of, you know, daily conversation with everyone, with anyone really. And um, I was amazed it wasn't front page news every day. And and I started reading about some of the, the journalists who, who, you know, who I'd been reading and, 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 you know, reading about their lives. Just, I think for the first time in my life, I thought, I could do what they do. I mean, I, I never imagined I could be as good as some of the journalists, especially some of the writers, you know, who, 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 who were just, just so good and still don't think I could, I could get to their level. But just in terms of, you know, having the, the stamina and the empathy and the curiosity to just, just get out there and, 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 you know, get somewhere difficult and spend, spend enough time there to really figure out what's going on and form relationships and, and hear people and get them to, to trust you and really open up and tell you everything. I just thought... Um, you know, for the first time ever, I kind of thought, a, a, there's something I could, I could be good at and be something which could be, you know, somewhat useful because, because then, I mean, back, back then, if a, if, a, if a foreign affairs documentary aired on the BBC in England, it felt like half the country would watch. Um, and it felt like something might actually happen as a result. I mean, I forget how old I was now. I think I was about 11, but you know, when feed the world and, and, and you know, the running for, for to, 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 you know, raise money for the famine in Ethiopia, you know, it felt like, journalism and, and, and books and articles and, and documentaries actually led to action and help. Um, and I think without realizing it, I've been looking for something like that my whole life, something you could do where you could actually, actually help. And, you know, things like being a lawyer or a doctor were just never, were never an option. That was just never discussed as even, you know, potentially on the horizon at any point. And journalism felt like something where I could use what I had, which was, you know, I, was, I had a little bit of, you know, physical toughness and bravery um, to actually, actually, actually do something productive and useful. So, so yeah, that's that's what that's what got me into it. And I always wanted to be a writer to begin with, and, and very much stumbled into documentaries a few years after I'd, I'd started trying to be a writer. Hmm. And was that something that you wanted to pursue in school too? When you were, I mean, I guess that's a young age, eleven, twelve. Um, and you grew up in England, right? Just for context. Yeah, and in, in, in Bedford, so you know, small town, just about 25, 20, 27, I think, miles north of London. Mm. Um, and yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't until I was about seventeen that I sort of thought. I mean, I was aware of of, of you know documentaries and projects that, that had helped when I was younger, but it wasn't. I wasn't really aware of what what war correspondents or foreign correspondents did until I was you know seventeen, eighteen, or investigative journalist. I mean, I, I was reading a lot of John Pilger at the time. I was reading, starting to read a bit of George Orwell. Um, 
you know, th- th- those were the people who's, 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 you know, just, just, just incredible lives mm. just really spoke to me. And I think also a part of it was just, it was a way of, of, of getting out of that, of that, that small town that I was in. And, and, you know, the expectation then was very much, you know, get a job that, that probably bores you, probably does nothing for the rest of the world, but pays a decent salary. And, and that's as good as it gets. Mm. On, on Friday, you go out and enjoy yourself. And on Saturday, you watch, you know, football live in the pub with a hangover. Mm-hmm. And on Sunday, you rest and have a Sunday roast. And then you start again on Monday. You know, that was that was it. Right. Um, so, so you know, reading about people like Orwell and Hunter S. Thompson and, and, and Martha Gellhorn and others just made me think that there was a, you know, much bigger life was possible. And, and you know, a bigger life where you could actually do, do, do some form of good, hopefully. Right. No, it's amazing. Was it supported by your like family and community? Was it something that was seen as like, oh wow, go for it, Ben? That's awesome. Or was it, you know, almost a, you know, weird little um, like a pipe dream? Like, oh yeah, go ahead, but you know, we know you'll be back. Blah blah blah. Um, I mean, to be honest, I don't even remember talking to anybody about it. I mean, it was oh. it was a, I didn't I didn't really fit in with school or 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 the town I was in. I was I was kind of lost and I was kind of angry and had had tons of energy, but I had nowhere to put it. And, and I discovered books at the age of about 17. I mean, I read Nietzsche and Charles Bukowski and Henry Miller, and I read the autobiography of Malcolm X, weirdly. So I was like a oh. 17-year-old spotty, skinny white kid in a small town in England. Mm-hmm. But, but just reading, reading about him and his life and thinking, well, his starting point was so much you know, less than mine. He was an illiterate, drug-addicted burglar in prison yeah. when he discovered books. And he copied out the dictionary, you know, from A to Z um, and would read all day. And then when everyone went to bed, he would you know, lean up against his cell door and that would use the light from the hallway to continue reading. And then, you know, a few years later came out of prison and pretty soon became one of the most important, powerful intellectuals in America. And I, I just, it just it just really lit a fire under me. And I, I just thought if he can transform himself that much with so little then you have no excuse. And I actually, tried, I actually tried to copy out the dictionary, the A to Z, just like he did, but I didn't even get through through A. Um, but, but you know, the, 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 the books were, it was just such a private world to me. And I kind of felt like for the first time ever, I, I thought there are people, and most of them were actually dead, but mm. there are people who, who, who understand me and who, who are putting my thoughts into words and articulating what I'm feeling and what I'm searching for and what I want to do. And, but it was it was very 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 private. I don't remember talking to anybody about about wanting to be a, a writer or a journalist. Um, I mean, even when I when I started writing articles and submitting them, and even when I I, I got my first job, which was going undercover to make a documentary, I, I, it was still a very much a little private thing. And I didn't really have a network of friends or colleagues or peers that that you know knew anything about that world or, or had anything to do with that world to help me. And, to be honest, part of the reason I managed to get these jobs in the first place was because the TV industry then was so sort of upper middle class to upper class. And they, you know, they were, they were educated and they were smart and, and all kinds of things, but they were not streetwise at all. Mm. So when I managed, managed to meet a few of them and start, you know, auditioning or, or applying for these undercover jobs, they thought I was this, you know, kid from the streets who know, knew about all of the scams and the crimes and what was going on. And I wasn't. I was like, you know, 80% of people in the UK. But to them, I seemed like, you know, I was I had had all of this street wisdom. So that's what enabled me to get these jobs going undercover. And that's what eventually led to the to the jobs, you know, traveling the world and making documentaries about Afghanistan and Israel and, and everything else. Right. It's amazing. Was the um 
I guess the whole concept of keeping it private, was there any reasoning behind that? Was it just something that you almost cherished in a way, the same thing with reading as something that you thought was very personal to you and kept close to your heart. And, you know, even with like, you know, successes and accolades that you had early on, there wasn't a part of you that wanted to, I guess, share that with other people. And what do you have any idea why that stemmed from it? Or was there something just um, was the nature of the beast? Yeah. I mean, it was just, it was just, it just, 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 you know, the, the world of books and journalism and foreign travel just, just wasn't a world that anyone I knew had any connection to or knowledge of or passion for. Hmm. Um, it really did feel, and, and you know, that maybe I was trying to protect something that I thought had to be kept the way it was when I first discovered it. But I just remember, you know, I mean, nights where you had no money, no prospects, no nothing exciting on the horizon. But I would, I would make these big pots of coffee and just sit there for hours reading these books. I, mean, I remember reading Crime and Punishment, and I read it in like three nights. You know, it was difficult to get into, wow. but once I got into it over the first 50 pages or so, I would just sit there and like read for hours and hours and hours. And I don't know, I mean, maybe subconsciously, I just thought that's how it worked. You know, it's just between you and these these long dead authors, you get this amazing bond and all of these discoveries but but yeah there was no one no one I knew to share it with and and then the people I was talking to within the journalism world I just thought were so much so much different to me so much smarter than me and and and, and better educated and it was you know I think that's why it felt like it's such a solitary solitary act for me it was just it was just you know it, like I said it was never even discussed as a possibility that you could do something creative and and somehow make a good living out of it as well Right, which actually you can't. I mean, it's very hard to, you know, you've got to be prepared for years and years of not making much of a living to maybe make a somewhat decent living. Yeah. Um, although that's changed slightly, you know. Now I've been living in America six or seven years. I remember every year it just happened on the BBC they'd publish everyone's salaries, and there'd be outrage that you know certain famous newsreaders were getting paid three hundred thousand pounds a year. Hmm. And that you know that's obviously a, a fantastic salary, but but in America you've got guys who have never really traveled much at all um and never really done much what i would consider to be you know real serious journalism and they're getting paid like 10 15 million dollars a year and it's just off, off the scale right. but but that's you know that's that's tv anchors rather than rather than you know journalists yeah um you ever look at like modern day i mean just i mean staying on that topic just briefly it's just the concept of you know kids growing up these days are you know very very far and in between going to have a very similar story as to you. I think a lot of people growing up now probably don't even know who Dostoevsky is or crime and punishment yeah. in his books. And they would look at that book and be like, I would not even attempt to read it because of how big it is. And, um, is that ever, you ever think about that in the concept of, you know, technology becoming something that is now the forefront of people, you know, receiving information and now books becoming something that's almost like an archaic in a way. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the amount of times when, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll mention a book that, that I assume everyone, I mean, even, even among, among young journalists, I'll assume everyone has read and sometimes they haven't even heard of the book. Right. Um, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm primarily a documentary maker. I've written one book and one ebook, but I've made, I don't know, 70 or 80 or something documentaries, but I still respect books far more than I respect documentaries. You know, there's always compromises with a documentary. There's always tons of good information left out but a really great book. I mean, I was just talking to friends yesterday about um, King Leopold's Ghost by Adam Hothschild. Mm. I mean, just, just the most perfect book of, of, of history that I've, I've ever come across. I just love that book so much. But, but 
but yeah, I, I, I mean, you know, it's not just it's not just kids who are addicted to their phones. It's 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 adults. I mean, how, you know, how many how many books on average do people read per year now? I mean, I've, I've heard that it's it's literally a, a handful um, of books that people are reading each year, and it's 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 such a shame. And I mean, I'd, I'd go even further and say, is it even is it even articles are being read these days? I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, I think sixty percent of people are getting their news from Facebook. And I get sent stuff all the time. You know, I'm friends with lots of veterans that I spend time with in Iraq and Afghanistan, and lots of them are, are very pro-Trump. So, you know, we're always getting into arguments about, about issues around that. And they'll send me these articles saying, you know, this proved there were 3 million fake votes in the last election, or watch, you know, Ben Shapiro own the libtards in this debate. And I'll read the article or I'll watch the video and I'll think, did you actually watch it before you shared it with me? Because mm. it doesn't say what the headline says at all. I, I think you shared the headline or someone you like shared the article and you saw the headline and you then shared it. And that was it. Um, and, and, you know, I, I remember when I first moved to London, I was uh, 20 years old, I think, 19 years old. And I remember I had a you know clunky old laptop and, and we were just getting into the internet for, 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 for the first time, you know, where you'd really spend hours a day, you know, doing things on the internet. And then just like you'd read an article and you could, you could click on a word you didn't know and it would give you the definition. You'd click on a, on a name from history and you'd read the Wikipedia page about that figure. And, and you know, you just, it was a, a, like a joyous thing to, to, to just discover so much and go down these mad paths. And people just aren't doing that now. I mean, they're not, they're not spending 10 minutes Googling something that they're actually willing to get angry about and go out mm. on the streets and shout about or argue about. And they're not, they're not, they're not learning the basic facts about it. It's, it's, it's terrifying. And a, a really discouraging time to be a journalist because you can feel like, you know, you're preaching to the choir and people that agree with you say, you know, Oh yeah, wonderful film about the Saudi bombing of, of Yemen being great. But they already know that and they already feel that way. So are you actually changing anyone's mind? Are you actually showing anyone something that they didn't already know or have an opinion of? It's, um, it's, 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 it's easy to be dispirited right now. Yeah, no, definitely. I think, I mean, you know, going into a field that is, I mean, like you said, very discouraging in a way to, I guess the one thing that I really you know, held close to my heart with the reasoning why I wanted to do it. And I think I read in or saw in an interview that you had a very similar um, idea was just the concept of wanting to change the world and help out people. And I think when I went to I mean, the Middle East predominantly and just seeing an underdeveloped third world country as opposed to America and, you know, all the different things associated here that we have and we just take for granted, going to a place like that and just seeing the people and how loving and caring they are and then coming back here and seeing how you know the middle east not just pakistan but you know all over the middle east and how it's portrayed on western media and you know just the you know general consensus of how people in america feel about the middle east and how yeah. for me i was like well that's you know that's my people that's where i come from and i you know the 90 yeah. percent of the people that i meet are the most loving caring humble people who don't yeah. have shoes yeah. on their you know feet but are so happy with their lives and we have people here that drive around in ferraris and shove antidepressants down their throat you know and it's this very interesting parallel of how happiness is viewed and how i don't know just how i guess media portrays different things and for me that was one of the goals that i wanted to do i was like i I want to change that and i want to make an impact and i think from the time that i set out to do that and to now it's been a very somewhat discouraging thing but also something that I, you know is inspiring to be like hey i gotta keep going keep fighting for it and 
you know, as someone who's farther along in their journey and as someone who initially did have that same intention, um, how do you feel about all that? Um, I mean, I think it's, you've, you've, yeah, you've got, you've got to keep going and you can never, you can never predict or, or, or target the impact any, any work you, you do has. I mean, but I agree with what you say completely. I mean, I, you know, when I was in the UK, I was reading all of those, you know, militant atheist books, mm. you know, by Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris. And I loved all those books and was getting into those arguments with people all the time. I've come to America and like you, I've traveled, you know, across the Middle East, spent most of my working life in, in, in Muslim countries. And even people on the left here, like um, uh, Bill Maher, you know, will say things that basically imply that all Muslims are kind of secretly ISIS, but they just won't admit it publicly or they won't admit it yet until they're in power. And you think, what, how on earth can these people say such? And, and you mm-hmm. say, you know, you, and if you get to debate with them, you'll say, well, how many Muslim countries have you been to? And of course, they've never been to any. Um, mm-hmm. But but so I, I ended up going from this, you know, being one of these militant atheists to someone who was defending Islam and Muslims all the time here. Um, but yeah, I mean that, that that leads to quite an interesting debate. I did a I did the Joe Rogan podcast a while ago and didn't really have any idea what I was letting myself in for. I hadn't really listened to it much before. Um, but I was in a bit of a dark spot at the time. And I think I said, Yeah, I really wonder if my work has had any impact whatsoever and done any good whatsoever. Mm. Um, and I wonder if it's even worth continuing. I, you know, I think I said something along those lines. And loads of people sent me messages saying, Oh, Ben, like I've been watching your work for ages and it's it's helped me understand this and that, and it's raised awareness, and and that's great. And 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 you know, I, I, I you you love to hear it, obviously, but you you do question what good raising awareness alone does if some subsequent action doesn't then take place. And I think my goal was always to help the actual people in the countries that I was reporting on. And if you look at it through that lens, then I'm not sure. I mean, you could argue that all of us together, as in everyone covering, let's say. Um, I mean, Afghanistan's maybe a good example. I don't, I don't know. You know. Maybe things would have been worse or people would have got away with things had we not have collectively reported on what a failure the war in Afghanistan has been. But how much have we really actually helped, you know, Afghans in Helmand or Kandahar or Ghazni province or wherever? Like, I mean, you know, it's, it's easy to think you're not helping much. And, and a couple of times on reporting trips, I mean, once in... I think it was Nicaragua. We were in a child child malnutrition clinic, and once in Gaza, where we were filming a, a bunch of houses that had just been bulldozed by the, the Israeli military. And both times, someone just came up to came up to us very angry and said, "You journalist, you come here. You're probably getting paid really good salaries. You get your pictures, which are going to get you plaudits and 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 you know awards back at home, but you do nothing for us. So mm-hmm. so so basically, we don't want to talk to you." And I think that's a perfectly valid argument and I didn't have much of an argument, you know, back. Um, so, so that's the, you know, there's, the, there's the two different, two different impacts. Yes. Especially in America. Um, you do need to raise awareness on all kinds of things. Cause I'm still amazed by how many Americans, you know, aren't even curious about much of the rest of the world and say things about Muslims, for example, which are just so obviously wrong, but then you would actually like to help, you know, the countries you're reporting from, in some way, uh, uh, if possible, and and that that's what that's what I find it hard to, to believe in sometimes. Yeah, often. What is um, I guess what does the help in those countries look like for you? Essentially, I mean, would it be like a UNICEF kind of thing where it'd be kind of just staying in those countries and helping out, and then I mean that would take away from the whole journalistic aspect of it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's very hard to do to do both. And, and you know, I've got lots of friends who work for medical NGOs, um, you know, UNICEF, Save the Children, and, and, and they'll say the same thing that I'm saying. And, and they'll say, oh, Ben, yeah, thank you for what you do and raising awareness to millions of people. I'm saying, what, what do you mean? I'm not, I'm not doing anything. You're directly feeding people or, or saving lives or, or, or whatever. So maybe it's just... It's just a mindset where, you know, um, no matter what you do, you're always going to question how much good it actually did. And maybe that helps you you keep on going and keep on you know, trying to improve. I, I don't know. I don't know many people, that, that, that even people that are doing real good, like, you know, surgeons for MSF or emergency or, or, or something like that. I, I don't know many that, that, that really, you know, go to bed at night and put their head on the pillow and just think, man, I'm, I'm, I'm really making the world a better place. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, maybe that's just, just part and parcel of doing anything like this for a living. I don't know. Wow. I think um, you touched on the whole uh, Joe Rogan podcast, and I think that was um, one that I watched and listened to. Um, but I remember one thing um, that you said that was pretty remarkable is that you guys were talking about how, uh, like, one big global thing would need to happen to kind of shake the senses of the uh, the world and kind of change the perspective of how we view things um, and sort of viewing that. And then everything that's happened this year, it was almost like a time teller kind of crazy you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, future yeah. prediction kind of thing, um, which I thought was absolutely insane. Um, I guess pedaling back to that and what you were sort of discussing as far as, you know, one big event to kind of change global ideology and different things like that and people's um, viewpoints on things. How do you feel like this year has kind of impacted that and has it impacted, you know, your work and, you know, kind of. Um, yeah, it hasn't, I mean, it hasn't, I mean, the only impact it's had on me is it's just forced me to stay in one place for, for four or five months for the first time in, in my adult life, which is, 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 is good and bad. I mean, it's good. You know, it's, I, I guess it's, it's healthy in the long run, but I am feeling sort of a bit useless and a bit a bit restless. I mean, I'm, I'm developing a, a bunch of good projects, but I haven't actually been out and done anything for a while. So it's and especially when and this is how everyone's feeling, I'm sure. When you know you wake up and kind of think, how is today different to yesterday? <laughs> you know, and how excited can I really be about reading yet another book and watching yet another you know drama series about Mexican narco traffickers? <laughs> um, but but I don't know. I mean, I I, I think I'm like hopelessly optimistic a lot of the time um and that can never be fully crushed but then i think i'm you know often i don't know disappointed by by what actually happens i mean you'd you'd hope that this would 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 and i think in many cases it has you know there are all kinds of local volunteer groups who are doing shopping for the vulnerable and elderly some restaurants have done an amazing job of of giving you know free food to health workers but but you're also seeing some some real selfishness and nastiness and, and, and stunning ignorance as well. I mean, you know, people people. I mean, it even got to, to England the other day where there was a, a huge march that filled Trafalgar Square of people claiming that the the coronavirus is a hoax. I, I was in a I was um, I met someone in Ohio just a, a few weeks ago who said it's all a hoax, and as soon as Biden gets elected, um, coronavirus is going to go away. He's going to hand power to Kamala Harris. She's going to hand power to Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi is going to try and take everyone's guns away. And then there's going to be a full-on civil war. Wow. And I said, like, full-on civil war, like like two standing armies shooting at each other. And he said, yeah, absolutely, it's coming. Trust me. Jeez. 
and he was and, and then you know you see you've seen armed militias taking taking government buildings mm. um you know you've seen people going out and actually shooting people dead i mean often i, I you see these guys that sort of dress up like they're special forces you know I mean, they're, they're, they're like in the middle of a city wearing yeah. camouflage and with tourniquets and it's just fucking they look ridiculous mm-hmm. and it's easy to make fun of them and often they don't look like they're in the best of shape so the special forces look really really isn't a good look for them but mm-hmm. but you know in the last few months they've, they've they've been they've been shooting people dead um so so i don't know you know i mean i think everyone says this stuff is is true dramatic and it's not going to get that bad and then and then suddenly it does um, and it, it's, you know, serious people who have lived here their entire lives have said they're, they're really worried about what could happen. I mean, let's say the election is close, um, you know, in November. Um, I don't think Trump's going to accept it. I don't think a lot of Trump supporters are going to accept it. And, and what happens then? Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a scary, scary time. Hmm. And I, you know, I, I used to read about, I read all of, um, Hunter S. Thompson's amazing coverage of the Nixon years. And, and yeah, you know, I always used to sort of think, I was talking to a friend of mine about this the other day. I, I, you know, I was thinking, what, what an amazing, fascinating time to be alive! You know, to see all this happening day to day. It must have been it must have been so so interesting to be alive in that period. And then you're actually living through a similar period now. And I don't know. I, I wake up in the morning. And I'm sometimes scared to pick up my phone just to see what's happened. I mean, yeah. you know, just just as things couldn't get any worse, we found out Friday night that Ruth Bader Ginsburg has, has died, and, and no surprise whatsoever. Um, Mitch McConnell and, and, and Lindsey Graham and the others are going to be complete hypocrites and, and try and push through a nomination um, you know, five or six weeks before an election. It's, uh, every time you think it, it, surely this next bad thing can't be as bad as it, as it could be, and, 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 and then it is. Um, and also another, another really negative effect of, of COVID and Trump is you know, American coverage of the rest of the world or interest in the rest of the world used to be pretty slight. I mean, I, I would say 95% of, of the news on TV and probably, I don't know, 85% of the news in the, in the, in the papers was, was domestic and, and, and the rest was foreign. And mm. the only serious foreign coverage was, you know, if a plane went missing or the blast in Beirut got a few days of coverage, but mm. that was about it. And, and it feels like this year that the coverage of, of, of some major crises happening in the rest of the world is, is just not getting covered at all. I mean, I've been covering the war in Yemen for five or six years now. I haven't heard that mentioned anywhere. And that's a war that, you know, could not be fought without, without U.S. support and, and weapons and planes and servicing and targeting. Um, Syria is, is, is as bad as it's ever been. And maybe a million people have died there. Um, I covered Burkina Faso at the start of the year. You know, a place where where over eight hundred thousand people have had to flee their homes because of of Al Qaeda and ISIS and several other armed groups, and and I've barely seen that covered anywhere else. So um, it's it, it's a really bad time for, for for you know hoping that Americans in particular will will have an interest in and, and care about the rest of the world. Mm. And that does, I mean, for someone who has covered, you know, many parts of international. You know, Afghanistan, Yemen, um, let's see, Iraq, uh, Syria, you've done even, you know, in Africa, Latin America, other parts of the world that, you know, is kind of the general basis. You don't do much. I mean, as far as I've seen, you know, a lot more war corresponding is being done overseas. Do you ever come back here and see, you know, something that you just saw that was so impactful and important and you know, just the lives that are completely torn apart and countries that are, you know, destroyed in a way. If 
by something and then you come back here and you don't see any conversations about it and a lot of people don't even know about it is that in a way very disheartening and sometimes eye-opening yeah yeah Yeah. i mean um i mean syria syria is a good example i i i've only been to syria uh, three or four times um, I didn't really cover Syria in the same way that a lot of my colleagues covered Syria, but but some of my friends were there for years, and, and you know they were getting footage of, of of you know entire buildings being destroyed with people in them of of you know babies babies um, killed and maimed in the worst ways mm-hmm. possible, and and sometimes those pictures did get on the front page of newspapers here and there, and and what have we done? Um, you know, I mean, we've even got people now saying maybe Assad isn't, isn't that bad and maybe we should do a deal where he stays in power and isn't held accountable. You know, it's, um, wow. um, and, 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 you know, uh, I know that a number of my colleagues were, were, were kind of broken by that. Um, you know, cause they, they, I mean, in, in, in Syria alone, I've had, I've had a few friends that were kidnapped, um, a few colleagues, they weren't, they weren't close friends have, have disappeared and, 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 you know, some have definitely been killed. Some, you know, we don't know. Um, uh, you know, people, people really gave everything for, for, for that, for that war. I mean, Afghanistan, you know, two, two friends lost, lost at least two limbs, um, covering, covering that war. And you've now got Mike Pompeo, you know, smiling next to the leader of the Taliban. Mm. And everyone knows that the war in Afghanistan should end with, with a political settlement and there's not a military solution. But it feels very much like we've done an agreement. We've, we've reached an agreement with the Taliban and we're leaving no matter what. So even if they don't reach an agreement with the Afghan government, who I think we've, if humiliated by sidelining them until now, Mm. um, even if the Taliban don't have guarantees on women's rights, for example, um, it feels like we're we're leaving anyway, um, and you know, in America there are I think two thousand six hundred, two thousand seven hundred American deaths in Afghanistan, hundreds of billions of dollars spent, and you know, we're leaving very much with our tail between our legs and having not achieved any of the goals we we claimed we were on the verge of achieving for years and years and years, and again, it's it's barely creating a, a, a ripple here. And and you know we could leave and have a, a a partial or even near complete Taliban takeover soon after we leave, and you know let's say Trump wins re-election, that could even not hurt Trump that much. Um, you know, I'd, one of the worst things about the Trump era is you start having the thoughts that you imagine him and his supporters having. Mm. Um, so I can imagine Trump getting a second term, the Taliban taking major cities in in, in Afghanistan and maybe even Kabul. And, you know, his supporters and him saying, who cares? They're, they're, you know, they want to kill each other. They'll always kill each other. There's nothing we can do about it. We're not the world's policemen. Leave them to it. And, and that being the end of it. Um, yeah, I can absolutely imagine those things happening. Um, yeah, it's heavy. That's extremely scary. And I think <laughs> as someone who's, you know, gone over there, it's definitely something where for you, when you you know, touching on, you know, all the dangers and different things associated with the stories that you've done. And you told a few of those stories on your the podcast you do with Joe, like even in the beginning, touching on, you know, being with the Marines and getting ambushed and, um, you know, having friends that you've lost and friends that have been badly injured and seeing, you know, death and violence. Um, 
How has that impacted, I guess, you know, going into it in the beginning when you talked about wanting to get into journalism, you were sort of, you know, physically a little bit stronger, braver, and you wanted, you know, you were quote unquote, like the street kid, you know, that kind of knew his ways around it. When you, I guess, initially started reporting on those countries and saw that kind of stuff for the first time, how did that, I guess, change your perspective on journalism and um, what you set out to do initially? Um, I mean, it's, it's a strange thing. So I remember very early on when I, when I looked at, you know, some of the people I really admired, when I actually got to see them in real life, um, you know, some of them were clearly, clearly had PTSD. Mm. Um, many of them were, were alcoholics. And it, and it was obvious that, that, you know, that, that, that could easily be an outcome of doing this for a living. And, and very early on, just as I was starting, a photographer gave me some, some, some brilliant advice and just said, look, Ben, no matter where you go, and no matter how poor you are, you have to go somewhere beautiful and peaceful for three or four days afterwards. That That is as important as, as your camera and your notebook. Um, you know, even if you think you can't afford it, you need to do it. And I remember thinking then that's great advice. Mm. And I've honestly almost never taken that advice um, because there's a, there's a, there's a dangerous, maybe it's just me. I don't know. I think my colleagues have the same thing. There's a dangerous thing where because you've got a return ticket in your pocket, because you know that no matter how bad things you get, at some point you're going to be in a nice room with a shower and water and food and, and, and you know, support and money that, that you, you completely dismiss any signs that it's having a negative effect on you because you compare yourself to the people you're covering right. in Afghanistan or Syria or Congo who have nothing and are trying to raise families in the middle of all of this, you know, violence and, and turmoil. Um, and, and that's why I think so many, so many of the older journalists I referred to before were, were, were drinking so much just to, just to, you know, block out any, any signs of, of bad effects it was, it was having on them. Um, and that, that was definitely the case with me for a very, very long time. And then I think it was getting worse because, because two or three friends, um, colleagues and my dad all reached out and, and, you know, I mean, especially with, with English men, you know, you don't, you don't really reach out <laughs> very often and say, mm. you're doing okay. Cause you don't, you don't seem like yourself. You're sure everything's good. So when three or four people did that and said that I, 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 I was sort of forced to think, okay, hang on a minute. Like you, you've been doing this a long time. You've never really taken a break. You've never really, you know, looked after yourself or put yourself first at any point. So, so maybe it's time to do it. And then, and, and, you know, very quickly got a diagnosis of, of PTSD and, and even then denied it. I mean, I think, in the end, we made a documentary about MDMA therapy for PTSD. So in the end, I was in contact with, I think, three different therapists who all said within five minutes of meeting me that I clearly had PTSD. And I was still kind of in, in, in denial because there's a guilt of thinking that, you know, you've, you've suffered because of, of what you've seen. Because for the most part, you are just seeing other people suffering. You know, it's not, it's not you directly suffering. Mm. So it's very easy to dismiss it and think, well, whatever little issue I might have, is nothing compared to compared to all the people I've I've seen and spent time with. Um, but but yeah, I had I had I had no choice at, at that point. And and actually, the only reason I I did get help in the end was because a new producer had arrived at Vice called Stephen Bailey, and his you know we had a meeting where he was he was going to pitch his first few ideas, and one of them was covering this you know MDMA therapy for for people with PTSD, and my hand just went up and I said I'll do it and I'll do the therapy as part of the documentary. So it was a way to get help, but also at the same time to continue working and to continue being productive. Right. And that was, so, you know, that was the only way I was able to actually 
spend a bit of time, you know, focusing on this and and and, and trying to get some help. Um, but but yeah, it would have been very easy to continue being in denial for for years and years and years. And I I, I deliberately I, mean, I barely drink now, but I, I deliberately avoided doing stuff like that, which could make you probably make it worse and make you you know bury it even even deeper. Yeah. Do you think if that opportunity wasn't presented in the form of, uh, for lack of a better word, like work, you know, as a story that you had to go work on with the uh, vice, do you think you would have sought out that treatment and that therapy? No, 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 I don't think so. I mean, a couple of times I, I spoke to people, I've got a friend who runs a really good charity that gives veterans uh, free therapy if they think they have PTSD. And I, I did have a conversation with, with one of the therapists, um, uh, I, I mean, I said, friends reminded me that I did a screening of one of my Afghanistan films way back in 2008 or nine, I think it was. And, and you know, there'd been some real close shaves in this documentary, you know, I'd very nearly been been blown up and shot a few times. And and apparently I said during the Q&A afterwards, yeah, I think that's it for me. Like I had some real close shaves on this one. And, and, and I think, I think, you know, being right at the front for these things is just, is just not me anymore. And that was, that was 11 or 12 years ago. Um, and my, you know, my poor mum. I mean, I've, I've, every time I say to her, oh, yeah, I think I'm, I'm thinking about going to, you know, Costa Rica for a month and learning how to surf. And she'll say, yeah, yeah, sure, Ben. Like, you, you know, you've been saying that for, for years and years and years. So even, even taking a nice, a nice, you know, holiday somewhere like, like to Costa Rica, I, I, I wasn't doing. Um, so no, no, I, I don't think I would have, I would have sought that help. And, um, you know, I, I think, I mean, one of the one of the one of the places where a colleague pointed out to me that I just I just wasn't right was Mosul, and and Mosul was really bad. I mean, it was it was house to house fighting. There were you know heavy civilian casualties. There were three journalists were killed while we were while we were there. Um, you know, we saw ISIS bodies everywhere when we were with the Iraqi army, um, and and um, I just wasn't. I, I don't think I was in a good position to make to make good decisions. I, I wasn't in a position to ever say no, this one's a bit too much. We should, we should go back. You know, it was always, you have to go forward. You have to say yes to everything possible. You have to push to spend more and more time in, 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 you know, the most intensive places because, because that's what you're, what you do. And that's, that, that's why your work is good and anything short of that. And you're, you're softening or you're faking it or, or, you know, and I, I was, I was, I was pushing like that. And I was, I mean, I remember times when I was, running across roads, knowing that I was going to get shot at. And then there was no adrenaline rush, no, no fear, no, no, nothing. You know, I just didn't, didn't really care. So it wasn't, it wasn't like I was, I was scared and, and was, was just so committed to journalism that I did it anyway through bravery and commitment. I just, I just didn't, didn't really care. Hmm. Um, and I think that could have ended, ended very badly. Wow. And was it just a, not a care of, dying or was it something that you didn't even think about? Um, yeah, that was kind of, I mean, before each trip, before you get on a plane, you, you think about everything that could happen. And then the two or three days before you get on a plane, you, you don't eat right. You don't sleep right. Um, and you imagine, I mean, I've imagined a thousand times where it's like to step on an IED and realize you've lost your legs because it's, it's happened to, to several friends. Mm. Um, once you're actually out there, you're just, or I at least was just in this, in this machine mode or just, just, you know, go, go, go. And, and, and you would occasionally stop, or you wouldn't even stop yourself, you know, while you were walking towards that place where you're going to take part in this crazy operation or crazy patrol, you might think, 
okay, this is stupid. This is going to get bad. I mean, I remember in, in, um, in Iraq, I was with one of the, the Shia militias who were about to take Tikrit from ISIS. And one of them was really trying to persuade me to take a gun. And he was saying, look, this is going to get crazy. There's going to be a lot of deaths. Like, you really need to be able to defend yourself. And I was trying to explain to him that as journalists, we can't carry guns. It just doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, there are moments along the way there where you, where you think, okay, this, this, this really could be the one where you finally get, get hurt or, or worse. Um, but, but I was, I was, I mean, the, the, the word that came up all the time when I was doing the therapy is, is, is numbness. And I, I was just really numb to taking on board how bad that could be. Mm. Um, you know, it was a thought that popped up and then was dismissed very quickly. Wow. Um, I guess initially when you started doing journalism, it was more of like an undercover sort of journalism. And then you did work with uh, BBC and you published, you know, stories. And then eventually you started working with um, Vice. I guess um, just touching on that a little bit, was that how did that whole process look and, you know, your growth as a journalist and, you know, as you've done more stories and, you know, I, I think initially doing more, not necessarily war stories as much and then i mean 9 11 and then access of evil and all that kind of led to a trajectory of i guess where we are now yeah um i mean yeah i did stuff the undercover stuff was you know as I explained because I, I was streetwise compared to most of the people in the in the tv business i did that for i think four years um i worked with a very famous presenter who who wasn't very streetwise so kind of and i kind of appeared alongside him a few times here and there and i think the controller of bbc2 saw me appear alongside him once and said you know like i I like the kid like ask him what he wants to do and and see if he's got any ideas and and that's what led to the holidays and the access of evil and because we were going to iran iraq north korea syria cuba and libya you know you couldn't walk around with a full camera crew and lights and boom mics and all that so it was just me and one other person with a small handheld camera that could have been you know a tourist camera and and partly by design but partly partly by accident we sort of invented this 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 you know slightly new method of of making documentaries in those kind of places where you never saw me standing in front of the camera you know doing a rehearsed polished piece of camera as i put my hands together in front of me you know we never did any of that Mm -hmm. we never interviewed officials behind desks with flags behind them it was it was very much a kind of a from the streets up feel and everything from me was either interacting with people and it was interacting with people, you know, while we were doing things or, or having dinner or walking somewhere or they were showing me something that there weren't many sit down interviews. Every time I spoke to the camera, it was a, an intimate aside where actually I was talking to the person behind the camera and there just happened to be a camera between us. Um, so it's a slightly new style of, 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 of making that kind of documentary and it, and it worked really well. Um, and I did a series of that. We covered all the conflicts along the West Coast of Africa. We did Access of Evil. We did a few others. And then I went to Afghanistan, and, and that, was, that was in 2007. And that was, you know, as you said earlier, regarding something else, that was just one of those cases where what we were being told was happening and what was actually happening was so far apart that that was it. I was just, I was just focused on Afghanistan for, for, for a good few years and then went back to doing all of the other conflicts around the world. But But... That 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 was that was the motivation was just you know the situation on the ground here is so bad and yet at home we're being told it's great and the British soldiers are patrolling without helmets and handing out sweets to children and mm. rebuilding schools and mosques and the Taliban are almost finished and it was complete bullshit. Um, 
but then at the BBC, you know, it's, it's, it's a big organization. I, I think it's really losing its its teeth journalistically and especially television. And they had a very patronizing view towards young people. I mean, the amount of people back then that would say to me, to get young people watching international current affairs, you need your films to be no longer than a music video because that's a young person's attention span. Wow. And I just thought that was so, you know, patronizing and insulting. And then, you know, I think Shane at, at Vice, I mean, Shane had been talking to me over the years and trying to get me to join Vice. And honestly, I didn't take them seriously at all for, for, for years. Mm. But, but when I actually met Shane one-on-one in Los Angeles for the first time, and he just basically said what I just said about, you know, the patronizing view of, of young viewers. And he said, I think that's bullshit. I think if we make great content from the rest of the world, um, then, then young people were watching in droves, and and that that very much became the case. And I think that was a large part of Vice's success then. And I did one film about what happens when the U.S. Marines hand over to the Afghan security forces, and how drug taking, kidnapping, theft, corruption, and the abduction and rape of young boys is extremely common. And the BBC version, which I think was called Mission Accomplished? Question mark. I actually had stuff not in there that I really thought should have been in there. I mean, partly for time reasons, it had to be no longer than 28 minutes long, but partly because some of the language in the filming, for example, me and this Marine confront an Afghan police chief who justifies child abuse in the most lurid language you can imagine. I mean, beyond locker room talk, just like the worst language you can imagine to describe raping young boys. Mm. And the BBC just said, look, Ben, even though it's just words, it's just too graphic. We can't include that. Yeah. Um, and then Shane said, put it out there word for word. And it was, it was in the, like the first three or four minutes of the film. Um, and the film was 28 minutes long for the BBC and I think 85 minutes long for Vice. And it went to a few festivals and it won a couple of awards. And, and that's when I just thought actually like Vice right now is a place that's going to give me complete freedom and, and, and believes in what I can do and believes that this information is, is so important that even if we make an 85 minute long documentary about, you know, corruption and child abuse in Afghanistan, then people will watch it in their millions. And then that's, that's how I felt as well. And people did. I mean, some kid put that video on YouTube and it's had like six or 7 million views. Um, and then there's the, you know, the vice news viewers and, and elsewhere. So, so that was when I, that, that was when I left the BBC and came to New York and joined vice. Wow. And, uh, what year was that roughly? Um, 2000 and I've been doing stuff for Vice. I had a deal where I did my BBC film and then two months later, sometimes I would do a Vice version of the film. So I'd come to Brooklyn for a week, Shane or Eddie or someone would interview me and we'd cut that interview with my footage and they were fun things to do. And it got me to Brooklyn for a week here and there, but it wasn't until 2013, I think when I actually quit, quit England and, and, and moved over to, to Vice and joined, joined full-time and became a, became a staff member. And then um, they just got the deal to do the Vice on HBO series. Mm. So I became part of that team and then you know, really just wanted to make feature-length documentaries, but ended up spending the best part of five, five or six years making mostly 15-minute films, which is, I mean, it's great. HBO is the, the, the perfect place to be and loads of people watch your work, but, but it has been frustrating going to some of these countries and then having to cut the film down to 15 or sometimes 30 minutes, you know, I, I, I really want to get back into the, the long form stuff. Yeah. What I think is, um, I've been a massive fan of vice for a long time. I actually interviewed, um, Thomas, I don't know, you know, Thomas Morton. Yeah. 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 I know Thomas. So I talked to him, um, uh, I guess a month or so back, 
but I guess just the concept of Vice magazine and, you know, originating as a magazine and, you know, by 2013, they were getting the whole HBO thing and um, taking off as a platform. And I think what Shane and, you know, Sarush and that whole company of people that started that, how they intended it to be and where it is, you know, as far as an organization and a news outlet that does very much appeal to the younger audience and sort of what we were talking about earlier as far as, you know, the younger generation of people not being able to read a book or, you know, still having that access to news and stuff outside of social media. I think Vice did a very, very, you know, impressive and amazing way of doing that. And I think what you said, you said did past tense. <laughs> and I'm hearing that from a lot of people. I'm saying a lot of people are saying you need to get back to what you guys were doing, doing a few years ago. Um, Sorry, I interrupted, but yeah, a lot of people have said what you just said. Well, I mean, do you do you feel like that way as well? Do you feel like it has changed in the years? I mean, 2013 when you joined and it was on HBO and now it's been, what, seven years? And I believe it is no longer on HBO. It's on Showtime now and um, yeah. stories and stuff have changed as well. But I think, I mean, what I was going to say more or less is just, you know, the concept of journalism in the sense of directly showing you something as opposed to telling you something is what yeah. I think is, you know, ultimately the most credible way of journalism. It's very hard to argue something if you're directly looking at, you know, something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As yeah. opposed to yeah. someone behind a desk telling you something, showing you a picture and some footage that they may have created, you know, in some way. Um, and that is the beauty of, and I like to say, vice and how they do it but i think with your form of it, it's always been you know the ones that i liked the most and i felt were the most impactful and i think um another journalist i really like is isabel young i feel like she does a really good job of that as well um and i don't know i, I we touched on it with thomas as well just you know the concept of vice changing in a little bit um as yeah a i think there's a real danger we're, we're hiring lots of um people from you know cnn nbc abc and and there were all kinds of things that had to be professionalized about, about vice. You know, there, there mm. were people in, in powerful positions there that, that, that just weren't qualified and didn't know enough to be in those positions. And there were, there, there were shoots that, that were chaotic as well, but there are also plenty of us who, who did, did really good work and, and had really good ethics journal, you know, journalistically. Um, and, and, you know, I think the strength of our work was that we were allowed to do what we wanted to do and the pieces were, were authored. Um, and had individual styles and voices, and I think there's a danger that that the professionalization of vice means you you lose you lose that. Mm. Um, and you know, I've I've had a few little battles with people here and there where, for example, they want a script before you before you go somewhere. Yeah. Um, and my argument is always, look, we we can't do what what CNN does, where where you you fly somewhere with with your piece planned out already. And then you find the three or four people that are going to confirm what you found out when you were Googling about this and researching about this. Mm. And then you pack up and go home. That's, that's, that's the exact opposite of foreign reporting. It's almost worse than not foreign reporting because it gives the impression you went out there and, and you know, did, did the legwork and then found out what was going on and then reported it when that's not actually what you did at all. Um, so so th 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 there's a balance and, 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 and I hope they end up, the balance ends up being you know, correct. But yeah, I'm, I, I am, I am worried that that, that, that show me journalism that you talked about. And you know, I, I think Gonzo people, because of Huntress Thompson, people often assume that the word Gonzo means 
take a load of drugs and <laughs> get into chaotic mm. situations, then write about it afterwards. And, and actually, if you read Hunter S. Thompson's journalism, like he's a brilliant journalist and a brilliant writer, and the drug stuff gets a bit boring after a while once you've read his his journalism. So, you know, you can still have that that Gonzo approach that I think people loved in in you know in the beginning, and 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 still be, you know ethically very strong with the stories we tell and still tell really important stories about, about Syria, Yemen and elsewhere, but it's, but it's a balance. And, 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 and I worry that, that some of the people coming from, um, you know, the mainstream news networks are, are thinking they're coming in as the grownups and, and, you know, there's not much that the, the old vice people have got, have got to say. Um, and they certainly should be left alone to do things as they've been doing things in the past. Um, and I hope I hope that doesn't end up being the case, but there are hints that that might be the case, which is worrying. Because I think I think you really would lose what what was was best about about Vice's documentaries if if you did that. Yeah, and a very much, I think a network that or a company that is different from any other news outlet, in my opinion, as far as someone who's grown up and um, I've always loved Vice, and I I loved Vice before I was even into journalism. You know, when I was just a normal whatever, studying whatever I was studying and going through life and the motions, if you will, I was always amused with Vice and how it was a little bit more raw and uncut and unfiltered in a way that yeah, that, that sense of professionalism is there, but in a different way from what you would see at, you know, the New York Times or whatever, you know, it's something and also, that, it was just capturing verite. I mean, so, so many people pretend they're getting, you know, real documentary footage when you can tell it's been set up. Hmm. You can tell they've just got the character they've just interviewed and said, oh, let's walk around outside for a little while and let's pretend we're doing something. You can't, you can't fake that. And I'm amazed at how many people still haven't understood how you capture real verite. You know, you've got to, you've got to make sure you're in the right place at the right time and you've got to hang around and you've got to, you know, get a relationship with whoever you're filming with to the point where they've almost forgotten that you're there or why you're there. So you can actually feel film real life unfolding. Right. Um, and you know there are journalistic outlets that I love, like like the Atlantic, like ProPublica, like the New Yorker. But in terms of video, there are still very few people doing what what we did best. In terms of of doc, I mean there are documentary makers doing it, sure. But in terms of people like you know putting out news documentaries on a regular basis, I, I'm, I'm amazed at how few people can still capture real verite and. You know, I mean, I'm probably exaggerating to make a point, but often they think verite is okay. You sit down, do the interview with someone, and then, you know, then then you walk up and down the street outside the guy's office for ten minutes and have another little chat outside, and that's it. That's the documentary footage you get. Yeah. Um, you know, Axios. I, I love some of the stuff that, that that Axios do, but sometimes their verite is like, oh, let's get the journalist to sit on the in a desk in a room before the interview and film them pretending to have a chat before they do the interview. And that's not, that's not verite. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, verite is, 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 is getting access to people who, who trust you enough where even when things are going completely wrong and, and, and could be, could end up being disastrously wrong, you're still able to follow them and film it. And you know, you're filming them confused and lost and trying to figure out what to do. And you know, that, that, that's what, that's what we, we did. We did so well. I think people are Responded to um, and 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 yeah, I'd hate to see us lose that. Yeah. Um, speaking on you know that amount of trust that you, I think it's very apparent in your stories and the people that you talk to are. I mean, I don't know. It may be generalizing in a sense, but I feel like the other outlets would almost be too afraid to go talk to these people, and maybe they don't have the access to, or maybe they don't have you know the level of clearance or whatever. Um, 
because I think Vice tends to do stories that very much are almost jaw dropping just to hear about where you're going, you know, to interview uh, members that were part of ISIS or to stand, you know, and to be part of like a resistance group that's getting shot at and different things like that. Um, that level of trust must be insane because it's almost, you know, letting them into a world where they are so vulnerable to allow you to have that amount of truth because it is very unfiltered and they don't have lines that they're going to say or a script or anything. They're going to say what they feel and their emotions. And also as someone who doesn't necessarily look like any of the people that are over there, how did that yeah. level of trust and, you know, what does that sense of responsibility look like for you? Um, I, mean, I can only speak personally, but I, I tend to use um, how bad some of the other major networks are to my advantage. So, I, you know, mm. if, if I'm somewhere where I know that people have turned up for three hours and got the quick shot of them on the front lines with their flak jacket on and then, you know, been back in the hotel in time for dinner, then, then I'll turn up and say, look, I want to spend five weeks with you guys. And I want to sleep where you sleep and I want to eat the crappy food you eat and, and whatever you go through, I'll, I'll, I'll be, I'll be right here going through it as well. Yeah. Um, and, and they, they do really respect that. And, and, and often, especially when you're talking about, if you're talking about, you know, us Marines or rebels or, or, or whomever, um, you know, they don't really care about the bigger political struggle or the bigger policy goals that might be going on or being discussed elsewhere. They just, they just really appreciate you, you, you know, wanting to spend enough time with them to see what, what their life and their days are like and see what they're struggling with. Um, so, so sometimes that, that helps get, get that relationship. Um, I mean, sometimes the last time I was in Yemen, we were, we were in a child malnutrition clinic and we filmed some you know, really, really shocking scenes. And I, I don't think any other journalists had been to this town because the town was literally surrounded by a minefield and there were Houthi snipers that, that you know, um, well, we're shooting people fairly often. So even aid agencies weren't, weren't sending aid in, mm. but just the fact we managed to get there and this, you know, we did, we do all the stuff you'd normally do. You know, we filmed people working, we filmed the head doctor and you could see there was this young nurse off to the side, just like itching, itching to talk. And we kind of, you know, nodded and said, you know, I do you introduce ourselves. And she said, look, you know, I'd like to say a few things. So I said, sure, of course. And we sat down and, and I, I, I don't remember asking that many questions, but I think they were really basic, simple questions. And she just gave this monologue about about you know how the world has, has abandoned Yemen and 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 you know how the the war there is just causing so much suffering amongst everyone. It's one of the, one of the most intense things, one of the best things I think I've I've ever recorded. Um, but just the fact that we managed to get there and just just gave her a, a, a voice for for thirty minutes um, was you know was I mean it was worth going all the way there just for that. And and that's what you're looking for. And then you know the the danger of doing it on the BBC News, CNN model is you're going to turn up and say, okay, I need someone who's going to say death to America. Who believes in death to America? <laughs> Great. There's someone, over, you know, and then you leave mm -hmm. and, and, and you don't talk to that, that person off to the side who's actually got, got something really interesting to say. And that's why I love, you know, I love, I love obviously news and covering the big events of the day, but it's, you're, you're telling news stories in a documentary style. So, so that's why you've got to be willing to turn up and discard almost all of the research you've done and and actually pay attention to what people in the middle in the middle of it are saying is is important but that takes that takes time that takes days of just you know having tea and lunch and sitting around and waiting for people it takes days when you don't get very much but but then every now and again you just get the stuff which you think is is is, is, is so important to get and then and, and 
you need the freedom to be able to get that and to be able to go in a completely different direction to the one you thought you were going to be going when you, when you first got, got on the plane. Um, and that's obviously, it can be costly and it can take time. So, so you need someone who's really supportive and trusting to be able to do that. And then there aren't, there aren't many organizations in the world that will give you that kind of freedom. Yeah. I mean, I, I always tried to be like, like the writers I admired, even though I was making documentaries, you know, I think about all the people I've mentioned, but, but, you know, John Lee Anderson, Richard Kapuscinski, all those guys. I just imagined them going to the the place where the revolution or the coup or the civil war was happening, getting to the, the right place that was right in the middle of it and just just hanging around, you know, just hanging around for sometimes weeks and weeks and weeks and and not chatting to the general and the president, um, but 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 chatting to 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 the people, you know, at, at the bottom underneath it all. And 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 then you slowly figure out what, what the story actually is and how best to tell it. Um, but, but, you know, like I said earlier, like going out there with a script in your head or on paper before is, is, is fatal to, 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 to that approach. Wow. Your, um, story of that, the woman in Yemen is, I think so encouraging. And, you know, as, as much as there is a bunch of discouraging stuff when it comes to media and, you know, everything that we've talked about as far as the negative aspects of it, that in itself is sort of the, uh, such a beautiful thing, you know, to give a voice to the people that are very much unheard and even unheard by the news outlets that go over there to report on those stories, you know, to yeah. imagine her sitting and also, there and not. And she was, she was so passionate about it as well. You get, it wasn't, it, it, her words were incredible, but it was the way she spoke as well. You could, you could just tell that she was, she, she, I mean, I think at one point she actually said, well, we're literally just surviving with like 1% of what we actually need, but we're like, we're, we're, we're millimeters away from absolute catastrophe. And you could tell this was someone like right on the edge. Mm. Um, and I mean, I'd, I'd urge people to watch it. I think, I think if you, I think if you Google it's vice news, obviously in my name, and it's something like, um, uh, Yemen is currently one of the world's worst humanitarian crises. And the, the title of the film was a living hell. But if you Google the, the online news article, there was an extended version of the film, which we did, which was 30 minutes long. And she was given much more time. And it's, it's just such a powerful thing to watch. And, and another example I just thought of as I was telling that story, I was with, I was with the Marines who were part of Operation Mushtarak in, in Marja, which was, you know, Obama's, Obama had a big, tough six-month policy review of, of the war in Afghanistan and decided on a new policy, counterinsurgency, and sent tens of thousands of Marines into this small farming district in Helmand called Marja, which was you know, where they were going to carry out this new policy and prove it could work and then take it elsewhere. And, and that's how they were going to turn around the war in Afghanistan and win the war in Afghanistan. And I was with the Marines that were dropped into this town at 4 a.m. on day one, and they had to fight their way out for three days with nothing but their rifles. And it was like intense, day-long firefights. And, and the Marines I was with were, were, were really good and, and really, you know, wanted to do the right thing and really cared about, about the, 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 the Afghan civilians who lived in, lived in Marja. They had zero civilian casualties despite these three or four days of intense fighting. And then another company came to support them called Charlie Company. And as they arrived, they fired a, a rocket into a house that they thought had a Taliban fighter in it and they hit the wrong house and they killed a woman and three kids. Yeah. Um, and I said to the Marines, who at that point I'd spent seven or eight days with and you know i've literally spent days with them in ditches while they were getting shot at and slept in this bombed out old building on the floor um and i said look i know that that after you kill civilians like this you're going to have a meeting where you're going to apologize and you're going to give them a condolence payment i would love to be there and, and film that that meeting and i was there on my own with a little held out camera and the guy said yeah sure ben we'll we'll come and get you uh, it's probably going to happen tomorrow morning at some point 
So I said, great. And I honestly expected them to send me somewhere else or to say they forgot and, and you leave me somewhere else and not let me film this, this meeting. But they, they came and got me. They led me into this meeting. And I filmed, a, I think it was a three or four hour meeting where these Marines who were, you know, pretty much in tears, apologized to the, the, the family who had just, just killed three, three kids and a, and a woman from this family. Mm. And the, the family were obviously distraught and angry, but, but sort of accepted the Marines, Marines' apology and their explanation for it. And, and then the Marines handed over $10,000 um, in, in local currency. It was $2,500 per, per person killed. And the, the father of the family kind of flinched as the money was bought out, but he took it and he you know, put it in a little bag. And, and again, it was one of the most, most, most powerful things I think I've, I've ever filmed. And it really did show the complexities of, of this kind of, you know, modern counterinsurgency war. And, and, and there's no way I would have got that or even known that meeting was happening had I not spent seven or eight days with these guys before. And really showed them that I wanted to show, you know, the truth of what was going on, warts and all, good and bad, mm. and was willing to go through whatever they were going through to do that. You know, if I'd have just turned up that day, um, there's no way I would have got access to that to that incredible meeting. Right. Wow. How does an experience like that, um, this one and the one we talked about previously, where it's very little conflict in the sense of you're not getting shot at? Um, yeah. How does an experience like that? I guess, differentiate from ones where it is very intense and you are being shot at and it's, um, in a way, I guess, more war correspondence that people would be more used to and maybe more exciting per se for some people. Does that experience almost, is it the same for you or is it just as impactful or is it more so? Oh, more so. I mean, you know, one of my favorite war correspondents of all time is, is Martha Gellhorn. And one of my favorite stories by her is she's talking about a, a hotel in, I think it's Barcelona during the Spanish Civil War. And, and, and really all it is is a piece about how this hotel is functioning despite the city being shelled. Mm. And she goes out one day and comes back and one of the rooms has been shelled and everything inside it has been destroyed. And I think one of the waiters was, was killed. Um, and it's one of the most powerful pieces of war reporting I've ever read. There's a, there's a great um, A.J. Liebling piece as well where he's in a field in France with British fighter pilots and they wake up in the morning and they have their tea or coffee and they have their, you know, baked beans on toast. And then they fly out to, to you know, have dogfights with the German fighter planes and some of them don't come back. Um, so he's not, he's not on the front lines. He's not in danger. But again, one of the most powerful pieces of war reporting I've, I've ever come across. So, so I always think that, that the impact of, of war on civilians is, is, is the most important story. Um, I mean, I try and get some of the fighting as well and spend some time with the fighters just to show what the conflict is actually like. But, but I hope the emphasis is always on, on the impact of war on, on civilians. That always seems like the, the more important um, thing to be doing. And, you know, I mean, all of the stuff I was talking about earlier with the PTSD makes you, makes you really review the way you've been, been working. And I think I was definitely guilty of just saying, where is the worst place to be? I need to be there. I need to spend a long amount of time there. And, and, and maybe there's a there's a smarter way of covering war where you still cover you, know, you still get to interview that nurse in the child malnutrition clinic, for example, without having to spend a week or two with with you know uh, men shooting guns because you you know we we all know what what men shooting guns from from trenches or from the back of trucks or whatever it looks like like who who really cares um, you know what 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 matters is the impact it's having on on, on civilians so so maybe there's a way of of, of covering it. You know, without without actually being on the front lines in the thick of the actual fighting, time and time again. I mean, it, you have to be in a place which is dangerous, and 
I mentioned some of my friends earlier who have been who have been hurt or killed, and and very often they weren't in the middle of some really intense firefight or or, or operation somewhere. They were they were doing something which on the on the on the face of it looked fairly ordinary. They just happened to step in the wrong place and, and step on an IED, or they happened to to be in a building where a stray shell landed, or they happened to take a wrong turn and someone kidnapped them. You know, it's. It's it's the the, the 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 sort of the, the physical danger side of this is is often is often very hard to gauge and 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 you think that the you know the big operation with hundreds of marines and, and there's a massive firefight going on is the most dangerous place to be and so, sometimes it isn't sometimes sometimes it's it's the ordinary stuff can get you in in, in real trouble as well. Wow. I guess um, another question I would for ask for you and if this is too personal, please um, let me know. Uh, the concept of numbness and, you know, having that whole idea be something that's been, you know, told to you several times and something that I'm sure you've thought about this whole period of time um, since you've had treatment and therapy and different things. Has that improved in a way? Have you felt like, you know, when you're able to come back from these stories and even during these stories that are rather intense, do you feel like you're the amount of numbness and the emotions that you have, are they changing in a way from how they were previously? It's, it's changing slowly. I mean, the, the MDMA therapy was, was a huge help, but I, I mean, they claimed something like a 70% success rate with, with veterans and first responders who have PTSD. I think I was not in the 70% who were cured of, mm. of PTSD. I'm, I'm not even sure exactly what a cure looks like. I, I think, I think you, you learn to live with it rather than, you know, just do something and it, and it goes away. Sure. So I'm, I'm sticking with, with traditional therapy and, and it's, I, I think there are, there are breakthroughs and I think, I think you have to remind yourself of the little breakthroughs, but just, I mean, really, I can give you some really small examples of things that are, are beginning to happen that I don't think would have happened four years ago. I mean, when in New York, when everyone was doing the, you know, the 7 PM applause to, to, to healthcare workers, I remember walking through the East village at that time and the applause had just died down. I turned a corner. And there was a young nurse walking towards me on the street, you know, in, in medical scrubs. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm generally like quite introverted and can be quite, quite shy and, you know, in public and with strangers or with crowds. And, and I just naturally like gave her a little applause, like directly to her as we, as we passed each other in the street. Mm-hmm. Um, and she just kind of like smiled and nodded and, and, you know, seemed to, seemed to appreciate it. And I almost had a slight tear in my eye just because there was this, you know, this nice, genuine human interaction between strangers and like a, a gesture of kindness that I was able to give freely and that was accepted. And, and that, that felt like a breakthrough. And it's, it's a tiny thing. I've got friends who do things like that all day, every day, with you know, all kinds of strangers and people in the car next door and all sorts. Mm. But, but, but little things like that just, just, yeah, did, did, did feel like a, did, did feel like a breakthrough. So there are, there are signs and cracks, but it's, it's, it's definitely a, a, a slow process and, um, and a gradual process. And, and also, you know, I think I'm, I'm somewhat different to the first responders and veterans who have been through this treatment in that, that I do intend to keep on going. I do intend to keep going back. So you've always got that as well. And, and maybe through self-protection or something, you're trying to keep yourself, you know, I mean, you could call it hard and tough. I, I would say it's numb, but you know, maybe you're trying to keep yourself that way because you're knowing you're going to need it again. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It's still a, still a, still very much a work in progress. But but yeah, definitely, definitely little signs of of of, of the numbness. You know, chipping away at the numbness. But I mean, especially during the pandemic, I've, I've, I found some days you can have 
three or four good hours, you know, when you're really enthusiastically thinking about things and making plans and, and reading books and then you can have at least as many, probably more bad hours when you just, it's just very hard to care about anything or be motivated by, mm. by anything. But I, I think that's probably what, what a lot of people are going through right now. Sure. And, um, you say you want to keep going back. Is that sort of the plan going forward? You want to continue to do these stories or is there ever going to be, I guess it's hard to tell, but a period of time when you do, you know, sell all your things and move to Costa Rica <laughs> or Jamaica and kind of, uh, not necessarily abandon, but maybe retire the whole war correspondence thing and maybe just write and read and have a slower yeah, life. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, I, know, I think my fear, like I've got a real instinct to do exactly that right now. Mm. Um, but I think my fear of that is it kind of feels like your your interesting, useful, purposeful life is then over. Um, but but maybe it's worth doing something like that for, for you know six months or a year and then and then see what's next. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm working really hard right now to try and get a four part series commissioned, which is about it's about war crimes, but it wouldn't involve you know going to active war zones. There'd be a bit of of historical, you know, retelling there and going to places, but going to places where there was fighting a while ago. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if that comes off, you know, how how satisfying that's going to be, how how good I feel at doing that. Because, you know, like I said before, sometimes I, I feel like my only skill is, you know, kind of a stuntman. I'm just, just willing to go to these tough places and stick it out for longer than a lot of other people. And that, that's it. Sometimes I worry that that's the only skill I have. Um, so it's going to be interesting to try and try and do something in, in different ways but but yeah this is still you know even on, even on bad days i think i still know that this is this is where my heart is and, and you know i remember at the end of the first mdma session and i thought i really thought the mdma therapy i did three sessions over three months i really thought they might that might persuade me to say okay you've been doing it for two decades you're, you're lucky to be in one piece like that you've done enough mm. you know, retire and do something else but i remember i don't know six hours into the first session I was having new ideas for documentaries and series and I was excited by those ideas and, and wanting to get, get going on them. So I, I think this is, this is always going to be what I, what I most care about. Sure. Do you, um, I guess, you know, going forward, the accolades that you've received, whether it's Emmys and awards and various things like that, has that sort of, been how's that impacted you and i know for a lot of people who make you know whether it's documentary films films in general uh, tv shows to receive an award like that would be sort of the pinnacle of success to them in a way that you know they always dreamed of receiving something like that for you does those awards do they hold as much weight or are they something that is sort of just another um i mean for, for the most part no I, I for the most part i, I couldn't give a toss to be honest i mean I've, I've seen i've seen some 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 you know news pieces in particular that i thought were just awful hmm. win emmys <laughs> um so so no i mean I, and I, haven't, I haven't really won one personally i've won i've won a few for series i've, I've worked on or, or or you know um but, but so 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 some some. I mean, even even the Oscars. I mean, it, I, I guess that would be the pinnacle would be to win an Oscar for a feature length documentary about something. Sure. Um, but but you know, I mean, for summer was was nominated last year. Um, you know, there have been some really incredible documentaries nominated, and and they gave it to the you know the big the big American domestic documentary. So so I, I don't know. Like I'm 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 aware enough 
of, of the voting and how the voting works. I mean, if, if you work for a company who has, who has, you know, some content nominated for an award, nine times out of 10, that company will, will lobby all of its staff really hard to vote for, you know, the, the content that their company made. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that makes you very cynical and skeptical. And also it's, it's a, it's a bit of an insider boy, I don't know about boys club, friends club, you know, of, of friends voting for their friends and giving each other a, a slap on the back. And like I said, I've seen some awful, awful stuff win Emmys, but then there have been some others, like I won a frontline club award in, in, in London. And that, that really did feel like, I mean, John Lee Anderson was one of the judges, you know, one of, one of my, my, my heroes as a journalist. Um, so that that really meant that really meant a lot to me. Um, I won the Prix Bayer in in France, um, and and um, James Noctway get you know handed over the the award. I mean that that was incredible because I really you know even even twenty years into my career, I really did think I still had another few levels to go before I was anywhere near on on, on their levels. Mm. But to have people like that acknowledge your work and say they thought it was great, that that yeah, that really did that really did mean a lot. But but for the most part, um, no, I don't, I don't think awards mean, mean very much. And then, you know, I also know people who have got, got tons of awards and they've never left, they've left their, uh, you know, their, their, their home. Right. What is, uh, what does success look like for you then? If it's not awards or anything is, um, your definition of success or something that you would genuinely consider, you know, um, I mean, honestly, I, I, I don't know. It, it, it's something that, that because of all the, the things we've been talking about that are going on right now, that I think is 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 changing often. I mean, I, I think probably at the start of my career, I would have thought, you know, you, that you do a war, that you, you do a, a documentary or write a book that leads to like real serious change. Mm. You know, you get you get the tobacco companies to admit they were lying for years about how they knew that tobacco was addictive. Um, I'm told that, that that one of my Yemen films played played quite a role in, in getting the, the the Senate and Congress to vote against, you know, supplying arms to Saudi Arabia unconditionally. But of course, Trump then, then vetoed that, wow. that bill. So, so, so little things like that here and there. Um, I, I, I also think that, that I thought that I'd, 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 I'd keep on doing what I was doing and it would, you know, it'd be, it would be tough and intense and exhausting, but I'd keep on doing that for decades. And then at some point I would exhaust myself so much that at the age of, I don't know, 60 or 65, I'd suddenly like collapse into a you know, rocking chair and just think, okay, you really, you really went for it and you, you pushed as hard as you could and you fought as hard as you could and you made as much as you could for, for four decades. And now you're completely spent and you're done and you can retire, um, you know, happy and, and satisfied. But, but I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I can do it in <laughs> the way I've been doing it for another, for another 20 years. Um, I mean, you know, the next step might be to try and help help the next generation of, of people doing this. And, and one of the things which has weirdly happened in the pandemic is lots of people have, have been reaching out. And I would always just, ignore, you know, whenever I got nice messages on on Instagram or Twitter or by email, I'd, I'd kind of, you know, sometimes I wouldn't even look at them or read them. Like, you know, like I thought there was something dangerous about, about you know, reading reading compliments from, from people. And I've actually made it a habit of, you know, once every couple of weeks just to sit down and, and really read them and, and, and reply or send a voice message and, and here and there, just, 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 just help people. I mean, I remember when I started out, I, I mean, when I wrote my book, I sent it to 10 of my, of my, you know, journalistic heroes and John Lee Anderson wrote back straight away wow. um, with a lovely blurb for the book. Um, 
John Pilger, who I think has lost his mind recently, but when I was like 17, 18, I thought was brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, he sent me a, yes, he sent me a little passport photo of himself, weirdly, with a little message um, mm-hmm. and a signature on the back and, and told me to, to, to buy a couple of books and subscribe to a couple of magazines. And, and that meant the world to me. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm, I'm John Lee Anderson or, or what John Pilger was then, but, but yeah, maybe that's the next thing is, is, is you kind of, you kind of think well, it's not all on my shoulders anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to help the the next generation do it. Yeah, definitely. And I am, you know, very grateful for this conversation and interview and, um, it hasn't impacted me in a big way. I, uh, I guess I would wonder what you would say to like a 17, 18 year old version of yourself. If you can, you know, you know, after years of everything that you've done, which is just a massive list of, you know, amazing work, would you, I guess, I don't know. What would you say to that young Ben Anderson who, um, you know, is somewhat shy about his love and admiration for journalism and wanting to get into a field and maybe being apprehensive in a way? I mean, I think, I think what I'd say and what I have said to a few people recently is, is when I, when I was 17 or 18 and when I, when I discovered these books for the first time, like my curiosity was, was just so high. And, and my love for these ideas and these stories and these methods of, of, of telling stories was so pure that, that like the path forward just became obvious. And, and one thing led to the next thing, which led to the next thing. And, and, you know, just, just, if you've, if you've got those qualities, like I'm not sure how much you can, you can teach, you can teach people the basic rules of journalism and editing and copywriting and, and, you know, everything else fairly easily. Um, Apart from that, I think the real skills you need as a journalist is, you know, endless curiosity, um, stamina and energy for, 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 for the work, a bit of physical courage if you're going to do the kind of stuff we've been talking about. Um, but, you know, those, those things can't really be taught. And if, if you've got those things, if you've got those instincts inside you, then, then just pay attention to them. Because they are so strong and so smart, and and your instincts as a, as a good, curious, empathetic human being will show you how to tell stories and what questions to ask, uh, and what's important and what isn't important. Um, and and it's very easy to forget that. Yeah, there's a there's an old um, is it Emerson or H. D. Thoreau? I forget. He basically said that everyone has a genius within them somewhere. Mm. You just have to like find that voice and be able to listen to that voice. Um, and I think if you do that and, and, and you pay attention to it so much that, that you're willing to go off in all kinds of crazy tangents and go off in all kinds of crazy directions. I mean, one of the, one of the, one of the books I love, and it's not, not really journalism, but Oliver Sacks' memoir, um, On the Move. Um, you know, his is a great example of a life that, that no one could have ever predicted. But because he just followed his curiosity and his, and his brilliance and his knowledge and his, his empathy wherever it took him, over the course of it, I mean, he, he was, he came out as gay when he was, I think, 17 or 18 years old. His family just shunned him mm. um, and ostracized him completely. So he, he left England and went to New York and had like a crazy six months on the gay scene in, in New York. Then he was celibate for, I think, 30 years until he met the love of his life. Wow. But in those 30 years, he became like a, you know, almost like a world-class weightlifter at, at Venice Beach. He became a free swimmer where he's swimming in wild, you know, rivers and lakes all over the world. He ran a basically insane asylum in New York and completely transformed it to be a place that was basically imprisoning people to a place that was actually helping people. And that became um, Awakenings, you know, the movie with with Robin Williams. Hmm. Um, He experimented with psychedelics every Sunday in his his Greenwich Village apartment years before 
you know, lots of people were talking about the potential benefits of, of psychedelics. Um, he wrote, I don't know what, eight or nine brilliant books. Um, you know, became one of my favorite New Yorker writers. Um, so, you know, had he paid, had he at any point paid attention to what he was supposed to do or what he was supposed to stick to or what he was supposed to do next, he wouldn't have done, done most of those things. So, so, you know, I think one of the great things about, about a career in journalism is, you know, it's, I, I went to university. I was one of the first members of my family ever to go, go to university. And I, I was so hungry to, to study and learn and, and, you know, share ideas. And, and it wasn't that at all when I went and I hated it. And I quit after the first year and kind of got despondent and then had to spend, you know, one or two years going off the rails before I got back into my, my love of, of books. Mm. Um, but, but, but all of that is to say just, you know, you know if, if you can pay attention to that, to that, that thing that your, your heart is telling you, you really care about and that you think is really important, you know, don't go and interview the prime minister of that country, find that nurse in that child malnutrition clinic, who's going to tell you what it's really like for people um, on, on the front lines of this this problem, dealing with this this crisis, then, and, and also don't don't be don't be don't don't think that you know because you've got a job as a as a writer or a photographer or an editor or a documentary maker like that's what you've got to stick to. Um, so in terms of the medium and the story you're covering, you know, I mean, I, I probably could, let's say Trump wins wins a second term, I could probably spend those four years covering Trump, which would probably be a fascinating thing to travel. I, I could probably cover Trump's financial crimes. I could probably cover uh, prison reform in the US, um, you know, the, the, the lack of mental health um, help available for, for the homeless in, in, in America, the, the healthcare, you know, it's all kinds of, and you can, you, can, you, can, you can almost reinvent yourself and your life like every few years based on what you're interested in or, or based on what's happening. Um, and how many, how many professions are there where you, can, where you can do that? You can basically design your own university course each year. I'm sorry, that's why I mentioned my bad experience at university, because if you're if you're in the right place as a, as a journalist, you can basically design your own university course every year. Mm. And, and, and whatever it is that interests you or that you think is important at that time, you can read everything that's ever been written about it. You can talk to some of the leading players in that field. You can come up with your own theory about, about what needs to be done. You can travel to the countries that are most important to whatever it is, it, you know, the, the, whatever issue it is you're covering. Um, you know, so so if you stay open-minded and, and and willing to just listen to listen to your curiosity as much as possible, then it yeah, it can be a it can be a, a fantastic life. And, and and you know, I talked earlier about wanting to you know help or wanting to make the world a better place in some way, and all of those all of those cliches. There's also there's also a selfish reason for doing that, and it's it's just a you know, it can be just a, a really educational, wide-ranging, you know, endlessly interesting life um especially of, of you know if, if you want to cover the rest of the world and, and, and travel the world yeah wow that's very well said i think that's great and i also share a similar path and the concept of going to school and then sort of not liking it and going off the rails a little bit and then coming back and finding a true passion for it but i think that's a very important thing too is just to always you know have that curiosity and that passion and everything so i appreciate you um Saying that, as we, uh, uh, oh, sorry, and, and the best writers, I think. I mean, you know, Martha Gellhorn, like I said, George Orwell, they, they maintained that forever. Like, no matter, no matter what happened, no matter how old they got, no matter what they'd seen, no matter how much success they got, you can still feel in every sentence they just really cared for 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 people and people's stories. Right, that's amazing. And Martha Gellhorn, for people that don't know, that was um, she covered Spanish War. She was uh, with 
Hemingway for a while, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that, that one of my favorite books of hers. I mean, my favorite is probably The Face of War, but but she wrote a, a sort of memoir called Travels with Myself and Another. Mm. And the the another was Ernest Hemingway, and she couldn't bring herself to name him because she hated, hated him so much by the time she came to write the memoir. Yeah. And she basically, she covered the um, the Chinese front with Japan in, in, in World War II. And the way she describes it is she went through hell to get to the front line and see what was going on. Mm-hmm. And he stayed back in, I forget which city it was, <laughs> just getting drunk with, with, you know, old important generals. And she basically makes him look like a, a, a complete fraud, certainly next to her. Wow. That's amazing. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think Hemingway also started out, he has a book called Byline, which is his early um, journalistic like stories and stuff, which... Yeah, yeah, and a lot of. And there's one know. of Adam. I think is it Adam Hochschild's most recent book. I think it's his most recent book called Spain in Our Hearts, mm. about Americans who volunteered in the Spanish Civil War. Um, I mean, I, I think everyone like King Leopold and uh, um, Adam Hochschild's last four books: um, Bury the Chains about the English abolitionist movement, to End All Wars about the uh, World War One and, and the anti-war activists there. Um, King Leopold's Ghost, I think, is like one of the greatest nonfiction books ever written. And Spain in Our Hearts opens with this story of these these two um, volunteer fighters who are fleeing the fascists and they're, they're running, they're starving, their clothes have been almost ripped off them. They, they, they crawl across this icy cold river and get cut and the clothes get you know ruined further. And they crawl out the other side and they find a road and the fascists are close behind them. Mm. And whichever car comes around the corner first is, is going to decide their fate. If it's pro-fascist, they're, they're dead. They're going to be arrested and tortured and killed. If it's anti-fascist, they might they might escape. And the, the car pulls around and the guys inside say, get in, and they give them a blanket and they drive off. And, and one of them is Hemingway. Wow. Amazing. And it's just, and as soon as I read that, I'm like, okay, now I know I'm in the hands of a master. This is Adam Hostchild, like at his best. Like what, what a story to open with. That's so great. I, um, how do you say his name again? Or how do you spell it, I guess? Adam? Uh, yeah, I'll spell it for you. It's um, H-O-C-H. S C H I L D. So Adam Hochschild, I think is how you, or Hochschild, oh, I think is how you pronounce it. Perfect. Yeah. I think we mentioned quite a few books. I would love to get like a list of them. That's, I mean, all of them seem very interesting, but I'm going to read, definitely dive into him first. It seems like the way to go. Oh, I mean, King Leopold's ghost. I've, I've, I must've bought that 15 times and, and, and given it to people. It's, um, it's, it's, it's just unbelievable. And, uh, you know, it, it kind of, kind of backs up what I was saying earlier. I mean, I, I think I'm remembering this right in the Adam um, read something about Belgian Congo and it being King Leopold's state rather than a colony, um, you know, his own private state. And he, he looked it up in the encyclopedia and it said something like, you know, when King Leopold took over Congo, the population was 20 million. And by the time he had to, it became a colony, not, you know, he gave it up as, an, as, a, as, a, as a private state and the population was 10 million. And, and he was like, hang on a minute, what? Like, what happened where he halved the population? And there's a story in it of a guy called, um, uh, damn, I forgot his name now, um, E.D. Malloy, I think his name is, who was basically a, a shipping clerk mm. in Liverpool in England. And he would see these boats coming in with ivory and rubber on them, and then the boats going out contained weapons. And after a few years, he thought, I need to find out what the fuck is happening in, in Congo. And he found out what's happening and, and started campaigning against it. And then eventually Mark Twain and others got involved. And, and you know, again, that's the perfect example of what I'm talking about with, with great journalists. Sometimes it can be something as simple as reading one sentence in an encyclopedia. And you think, wait a minute, 
what happened where the population was halved from 20 million down to 10 million. And that led to what I think is one of the greatest nonfiction books of all time. You know, that, that's the kind of curiosity I'm, I'm, and, 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 you know, individuality of thinking that I'm, I'm, I'm referring to. Yeah, it's amazing. Is that something that you would consider doing, writing and maybe taking a step back from documentary filmmaking and writing books? I know you wrote um, the book on Afghanistan. Um, I would love to. It's, it's, um, it, I've got a real, like, because my, my whole career, I've, I've, I've only reported on things or, or talked about things or written about things that I've actually witnessed with my own eyes. Um, so I would love to do a book like King Leopold's Ghost, but it's, it's, it's quite a hard concept to get my head around that, that, you know, I could just rely on other secondary sources and other books and, and, and even, you know, if you can get your hands on all kinds of original documents and stuff, it's a very different skill set, And it's a, I, I like the feeling of, you know, like you said something earlier about, about when you're, when you're showing things, it's just, it's incontrovertible evidence. Like I like, mm. I like the feeling of saying, okay, like here, here's footage of a guy on drugs with a young boy as a servant bragging about how he sexually assaults that young boy at night. Um, you know, that is irrefutable evidence. There's no, there's no art to it. There's no creative genius to it. I don't claim I'm like, you know, a wonderful filmmaker or director or with the, with the writing, don't claim I'm an amazing writer. It's just hard evidence that you cannot refute. Mm. Like that, that's what, that's what excites me. And that's what I like trying to do. So I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I'd, I'd, I'd love to be able to write, write a book 10% as good as King Leopold's ghost. I, I, I don't know if, if, if I could do it. And you know, the other thing I'd say to, to young aspiring journalists is just, just figure out what you're good at because you will spend years working your ass off and working yourself to exhaustion with probably very little in return. So it's, it's got to be something that actually doesn't feel like work. And if, if your passion is to go through hundreds of, of, of documents, trying to find those few little nuggets of information, then, then do that. If your passion is, 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 you know, just really getting out to the far reaches of the world and, and, and getting to the, the toughest, most remote places, then, 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 then do that. If your passion is, interviewing people is whatever it is you think you could, you could just do. I mean, I always used to say to people, um, when you've finished work and you go home and you've had your dinner and you've done all your everyday things, like, like when you've got that hour or two free at night, what is it you're, you're spending time on? And for me, I was reading about Gaza and Congo and, and Israel, Palestine and Afghanistan. And so that, that, that showed me, you know, which, which way to go. Um, and, 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 and so, yeah, in, t in terms of other advice for young aspiring journalists, just just it's fairly easy, I think, to figure out what what you'll be good at and what you'll be able to do for a very long, long periods of time, maybe without much reward. And I would, I would, I would, I would stick to that. Wow, awesome, man. Well, I guess as we uh, wrap up there, um, do you have any uh, like ways where people can find you and look at your work and any? I guess I mean you've done a ton of films. If there's any. I know the Yemen one is one that you recommend people check out. Uh, I guess it's weird to, you know, recommend your own work or whatever, but if you <laughs> want to, you know, just where people can find you, check out your stuff and, you know, some, maybe some top ones that you would recommend people checking out. Yeah. And no, I don't have a, I don't have a page or anything. There's, if you just type in my name and whatever country interested, you're interested in, there's a bunch of stuff on YouTube. There is, um, well, there must be 30 or 35 films on HBO and Showtime. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of the book, No Worse Enemy. Um, I'm proud of the two fe feature documentaries I did, The Battle for Marja, which was on HBO, but I'm pretty sure it was on YouTube. 
Um, this is what winning looks like, which is the one I talked about with the, the Afghan police justifying child abuse. That's on that's on YouTube. Um, yeah, that's that's about it. I mean, I'm not I'm not really on social media, but when I am, I just I'll put out a, a picture or a tweet sharing recent work. Um, Burkina Faso, I think, was 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 the last one. So. Ben John Anderson, if you want to get one tweet every three months from me about, about what I've been up to, um, then, then yeah, that's a good way to find some stuff. But yeah, I, I really probably should. Um, that's probably one of the many things I should have done during um, during COVID is uh, is organize a page where everything's in one place. There were so many things I planned to do. Like I, I, I'm a terrible typer. I type with 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 fingers and thumbs, like, like main like index fingers and thumbs, and that's it. Mm. And one of the things I swore I'd do during quarantine was learn how to type, and, and I, I haven't yet done it. I start doing it, and I get annoyed, just go back to, to single finger typing. But um, yeah, yeah, it just reminded me of something else on the to-do list I, I didn't get to. Right on. Well, Ben, I appreciate your time, man. Thank you so much for uh, sitting down with me. It's an absolute pleasure. Great talking to you as well. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Double Life. If you want to see more of Ben's work, you can follow him at Ben John Anderson on Instagram and Twitter. You can also head to YouTube and check out all the documentaries he's done, as well as picking up his book, No Worse Enemy. You can follow us at The Double Life Pod. Make sure to subscribe and tell your friends. Adios.